Okay, everybody, I think we're ready to start and a very warm welcome to you all to this talk in the 141st session of the Aristotelian Society. It's a very great pleasure to introduce our speaker today, who is Joseph Chan, Professor of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong and Global Scholar and Visiting Professor at the Centre for Human Values in Princeton. Joseph works on Confucian political philosophy, comparative political theory, democratic theory, social and political equality, and popular sovereignty. He's author of Confucian Perfectionism, a political philosophy for modern times, and co-editor of Asian Perspectives on Political Legitimacy, as well as author of numerous journal articles. His talk today is entitled Equality, Friendship, and Politics. And without further ado, it's a great pleasure to hand over to Joseph. Thank you, Bill. Um, it's my great pleasure and honor to speak at the Aristotelian Society tonight. Well, this afternoon at the UK time, but here it's tonight. Um, uh, I want to thank the organizers for having me here. Uh, my talk is going to be about equality, friendship and politics. What I'm going to do is to read the paper. Uh, since I hope you know, the paper is written pretty accessibly, so I hope you wouldn't have too much of a problem following the arguments when I read the paper. In recent years, there have been a growing number of theorists arguing for relational or social equality as an alternative to understanding equality as a distributive principle. Equality, according to these theorists, should be first, first and foremost to an egalitarian ideal of social relationship. Various goods are distributed in order to secure a society in which people are related as equals. Equal social relations might or might not require equal distribution of various goods, depending on the nature of the good in question and its impact on the relations between people. In short, for these theorists, social equality is more fundamental than distributive equality. Now let us call theorists endorsing this view relational egalitarians. Now to qualify as a fundamental social ideal, relational equality has to meet several criteria. First, as a fundamental ideal, it must have a substantive content clear enough to generate implications for social or political issues. It must, for example, be possible to show how certain social or political arrangements can be justified or rejected by appealing to that ideal. Second, as a distinctive egalitarian ideal, its, con its content must not be reducible to other values. Now, relational equality is often associated with other values, such as reciprocity, fairness, or mutual respect. What needs to be shown in, is that relational equality contains at least some elements that are not identical with those, uh, with these values such as reciprocity, fairness, or other non-egalitarian values. Third, as a general social ideal, it must have wide applicability in different social and political contexts. The ideal is not something 
invented by theorists, but embedded in many social relationships in modern society with which people are familiar. Now, some theorists believe that the ideal of relational equality does satisfy these demands. The strategy of arguments starts with some personal relationships that they think are generally regarded as egalitarian. Through analyzing the nature of these relations, one can grasp what the abstract idea of equality amounts to. And because these personal relationships are valuable for their own sake, their, their constitutive principle, namely relational equality, is also valuable. Once the meaning of relational equality is pinned down and its value affirmed, its implication for relationships in other contexts, such as politics or the workplace, can be explored. It can be asked, for example, whether equality in personal relationships can support equality in the political relations of citizens. A few theorists have argued somewhat along about the, the above line. Samuel, sorry, Samuel Scheffler claims that one of the advantages of relational conception, quote, is that it represents equality as a value that applies to human relationships of many kinds. And we may learn things by looking at this non-political applications that will help us to understand how it applies to the political case. Daniel Vihoff shares the same view. He says, quote, equality is an ideal central to many of our relationships. If that ideal carries over directly or indirectly from these relationships to our political arrangements, then this could provide independent support for democratic procedures and the demand they make on us, end of quote. James Wilson, another scholar, adopts a similar strategy. He writes, quote, knowing roughly what it, what it is to relate as equals, a conception of egalitarian relations informs our idea of a society of equals. We extend the egalitarian ideal beyond familial inter interpersonal relationships to more complex relationships and social structures with respect to which our immediate in intuitions may be unreliable, uncertain, or simply absent." End of quote. Relational egalitarians typically regard friendship as a paradigmatic case of relational equality. For them, friendship embodies equality. Understanding what friendship is and how it works elucidates the more abstract idea of relational equality. Relational egalitarians have also explored the implications of egalitarian friendship for political equality. Scheffler and Wilson claim that despite many differences between friendship and citizen relationships, the central features of equality in friendship can apply to politics. This essay, this paper that I'm now presenting, will raise critical questions about these theorists' arguments. Does friendship embody an ideal of equality as relational egalitarians claim? How far can the norms of friendship apply to the political context? I argue that friendship is not a paradigmatic case of relational equality, and it is a poor model for 
political relationships. It is important, however, at the outset to distinguish two different approaches to analyzing the relationship of friendship and equality. The first approach is to apply the philosophical idea of equality to friendship and see how friendship looks like if friends relate to one another as equals. The second approach is to look at how friends commonly relate to each other in real life and see if friendship as a social phenomenon in fact embodies the norms of equality. If the first strategy is philosophical top-down, then the second strategy is empirical and bottom-up. I shall argue that only the second strategy is acceptable if the strategy of relational egalitarians is to work. But sometimes some of the language that egalitarian theorists use does seem to give people the impression that they adopt the first approach, the philosophical one. Scheffler writes that equality is, quote, a value that applies to human relationships of many kinds, end of quote. He invites his readers to, quote, consider the assertion that a marriage or partnership should be a relationship between equals, and then ask, what might this mean? He said, suppose we have two spouses or partners, if each of whom is committed to conducting their shared relationship on an egalitarian basis, how might this affect the way they relate to each other? And of course. Now the problem with this approach is that since friendship is defined already with reference to a philosophical conception of equality, friendship then necessarily embodies equality. Under this approach, equality is presumed to be of an uh, sorry, equality is presumed to be of an independent value and has an independent meaning only to be applied to friendship. Friendship does, does not elucidate the meaning of equality or vindicate its value. The fact that egalitarians thinks that equality is a constitutive component of certain non-derivatively valuable relationships is true only by philosophical stipulation in that the norm of equality is imposed on friendship. Well, to be fair to relational egalitarians, they may well maintain that as a matter of social fact, egalitarian, relation, uh, sorry, egalitarian friendship is a paradigm of friendship as such. They may claim that friendship is a social practice conducted on a foot of, footing of equal or that friendship and sim similar relationships involve a genuine commitment to an ideal of equal power. But if that is the case, the real force of the argument lies in the fact that friendship as a social practice embodies the value and norms of equality. Such an argument follows then the second empirical bottom-up approach rather than the philosophical top-down one. Under the empirical approach, friendship and other personal relationships are generally practiced, as, sorry, as generally practiced, are shown to be underpinning equality, thereby giving it a non-derivative value. It seems that Wilson follows the empirical approach. 
in extending the egalitarian ideal to beyond friendship to politics. The egalitarian ideal to be extended is not defined independently of friendship, but extracted from it. Wilson writes that, quote, we typically, perhaps necessarily, consider friends our equals. The norms that partially constitute the relation, the relationship, the common understanding between friends of what it means to treat each other like friends are egalitarian, end of quote. And he said, continue to say, quote, from this observation that true or good friendship requires equality, we can extrapolate that citizens in general have reasons to pursue and support equal social relations, end of quote. Now, this view that friendship requires equality is not a philosophical stipulation, but an empirical observation that reflects a common understanding of the social practice. The crucial question then for this empirical approach is whether friendship as a social practice is indeed constituted by norms of equality. Wilson thinks it is. And in what follows, I will take Schaeffler and Wehoff to be sharing the same approach. So now, now let us now see what, they, what these theorists take those norms of equality to be in friendship. Well, Scheffler, while personal partnership or friendship draws on values such as reciprocal and mutual respect that are not specifically egalitarian, the relationship that does distinctively, sorry, the relationship that contains distinctively egalitarian elements, he identifies two elements. The first is what he calls egalitarian deliberative constraints. Quote, each person accepts that the other person's equally important interests should play an equally significant role in influencing decisions made within the context of the relations, end of quote. The second element is what can be called equal entitlement to participate in decision making. Quote, neither participant is seen by either of them as possessing more authority than the other within the context of the relationship. And each sees each other as entitled to participate fully and equally in determining the future course and character of the relationship, end of quote. On Vyhoff's view, friendship starts with special concern for one another. Generally speaking, my friend's interests make greater demands on me than those of strangers. Friendship also requires equal concern, which is similar to Scheffler's egalitarian distributive constraints. But Vyhoff thinks there is also a requirement of equal power over the relationships. Quote, friends should have equal power, understood as equal opportunity for influence over the character of their relationships and the norms governing it. And failure to distribute power, sorry, and failures to distribute power over the relationships equally means that the relationship falls off its egalitarian ideal, end of quote. Similar to Scheffler and Wehoff, Wilson maintains that true or good relationship also involves two special elements. The first is mutual recognition of equality. 
in the sense that a friend does not take her needs, interests, or demands as generally having greater precedence over those of other friends. The second is what he calls equal sharing of authority. Friends share equal authority to decide what they will do together. Quote, friends are in this sense political equals, end of quote. Now summing up these theorists' understanding of friendship, we have the following general description of friendship. In addition to central features like reciprocal goodwill, benevolence and respect, friendship is constituted by two norms of equality, equal considerations of interest and equal power or authority. Now we can ask, how far does this account of friendship conform to people's common understanding of friendship? Is friendship as a social practice in fact constituted by the two norms of equality? We need an empirical account of friendship to answer these questions. An empirical account of friendship, however, will not have the tidiness of a philosophical account. The practice of friendship varies from society to society and so do people's understanding of the practice. It seems implausible to come up with an empirical account of friendship that captures all sorts of practices and understanding. To put it in another way, it seems impossible to extract a set of necessary and sufficient conditions of friendship, which is based on the common practice of friendship. But if we adopt a less rigorous account of the nature of friendship, we might be able to find a range of features that are usually, though not necessarily always, present in the common practices of friendship or in the ordinary people's reflective accounts. Some social scientists call this prototype view of friendship or family resemblance view. Fortunately, there is a substantial social science literature on friendship furnishing us with robust information about people's views of the practice of friendship. Let us take a brief look at some of the findings and see if we could piece them together to form a coherent picture of lay people's, as opposed to those of academics, conception of friendship. Beth Liefer has revealed a large number of social science research findings on how lay people understand the meaning and norms of friendship. When asked to complete the sentence, a friend or close friend is someone, dot, dot, dot. Adult respondents from several countries in the UK and US in a series of research gave very sim similar answers. Like, I can trust and call for help, whose company I can enjoy, with whom you share things, who accepts me, with whom you have a caring relationship, and so on. Fur also discusses other research on adults' conceptions of friendship, which commonly include the following features like enjoyment of one another's company, trust, intimacy, common interest, reciprocity, loyalty, and self-disclosure. In a series of cross-country opinion surveys of people in Britain, Hong Kong, Japan, and Italy, with regard to their views on the norms of friendship, Michael Argyle and Monica Henderson found that the following norms were regarded by the respondents in all of the four places as really important for friendship. And the answers, the norms are show emotional support, 
volunteer help in the time of need, strive to make him or her happy while in each other's company, share news of success with the other, trust and confide in one another, and stand up for the other persons in his or her absence. We may also consult the findings of qualitative research on friendship. Lee Spence and Ray Powell conducted 60 interviews with men and women of different ages from different socioeconomic and ethnic backgrounds and living in different parts of Britain. The two authors charted the following picture of friendship. Friends are voluntary relations that have to be established. Friends share something in common, similar interests, lifestyle, same stage in their lives, for example. Friends are those who enjoy each other's company and doing things together. Friends can relax with each other. Friends offer each other practical help and can confide in one another. Spence and Paul also note that a committed friendship implies a certain kind of morality. Good friends have a sense of allegiance and loyalty to one another. They are trustworthy, accepting friends as who they are and committed to a loose but genuine ideal of balancing reciprocity. Now putting the empirical findings together, we get the following portraits of friendship as generally understood by ordinary people. And I, and I propose to analyze it in three dimensions, motivations, actions, and norms. The most fundamental motivation of friendship is mutual affection. People become friends when they like each other and find each other's company pleasurable for its own sake, partly because they share things in common. The mo this motivation is what separates friendship from mere benevolence towards another person like a stranger. Closely related to affection is the motivation to, to make one's friends happy. Friends which wish each other well and are delighted to do in doing things that make us make each other happy. These motivations naturally lead to actions. Friends spend time together, do things together. They give gifts to express expression, affection, offer each other help, confide in each other and share each other's joy and sorrow. Now, furthermore, friends' actions are guided by certain norms. Friends, at least, or at least close friends, should trust and be trustworthy to each other loyal to each other, refrain from publicly criticizing each other, and stand up for each other in their absence. Friends should reciprocate goodwill and assistance. Reciprocity, however, is not a precise notion, and it shouldn't be interpreted rigidly. It is not that if I've treated or helped you two times, then you have to do the same to me twice. People's abilities to reciprocate vary according to the resources and time they have. The spirit of reciprocity is rather that friends do not take each other's goodwill or assistance for granted, and that they reciprocate in ways that they can afford. Undoubtedly, uh, the, the above portrait can be amended or enlarged upon further empirical investigation. But what is striking about this portrait is that there's no mentioning of any norm of equal power or authority in decision-making when friends do things together. How to explain this conspicuous absence? One possible explanation 
is that the absence may just be a result of certain omission in research design. It may be the case that the researchers were not interested in finding out how friends make decisions when they do things together or how they resolve conflicts in the relationship. The thought may be that if the respondents were prompted to talk about issues of power in relationship and friendship, they would tell the researchers that they regard equal decision-making power as an important norm. But I think this absence because of omission explanation is not very plausible. If conflict and power is an important issue in the social practice of friendship, it is likely that researchers or respondents would talk about it. If equal authority of power is an important norm in friendship, again, it would likely appear in empirical studies on the rules and norms of friendship, but it doesn't. Furthermore, in explaining or exploring how friends maintain their relationship and how they resolve conflicts, first review of research studies on friendship points to a completely different picture. The issues that people in friendship commonly face are not about equality or inequality of power, but tensions between voluntary association and intimacy, between freedom and commitment, into independence and dependence, and openness and self-protection. People are concerned about how to strike a right balance of these competing values in friendship, not about who can decide on how these tensions are to be dealt with. In other words, the prominent issue in friendship is first-order competition of friendship values, not second-order power to resolve first-order problems. Those tensions arise from mundane, everyday interactions in a relationship. And equally, they are dealt with through mundane interactions without following any decision-making norm. Instead, friends resort to implicit strategies such as avoidance, discussion, or negotiation to address the tensions. But more often, these tensions are simply toler tolerated by the, friendship, by the parties in friendship and sometimes friends maintain their relationships simply through spending time together and trying to allow friends to be who they are. Finally, first review also suggests that the common causes of hurt, anger, and conflict in friendship are rebuff or rejection, being mocked or minimized, cumulative annoyances, negligence, or lack of consideration unwarranted criticisms and betrayal of trust, end quote. Again, inequality of power doesn't appear on the list. Now, if the empirical findings are reliable and indicative of the actual practices of friendship, we may ask why power or authority is not a major concern reported by respondents or researchers. Spencer and Paul's observation about the voluntary nature of friendship suggests a clue. They write, quote, because friendship is a chosen relationship, it is based on voluntary commitment rather than formal obligations. Although friends may hope for loyalty, consist constancy, trustworthiness, acceptance, honesty, and reciprocity, they cannot expect these as of right Friends recognize that you shouldn't push friendship too far. 
the idea of setting limits to expectations seems to and sorry and encapsulate seems to encapsulate the essence of commitment within the chosen relationships. Now the quote highlights two important facts about friendship as a social practice. The first is that it is voluntary. Friendship is chosen and created and people can ex exit anytime from the relationship. The second is that unlike family or political relationships, friendship is informal. Its norms are not defined or regulated by law. While there are friendship norms and obligations, they are not enforceable and their very requirements are open to interpretation and open to negotiation. Now, given the voluntary and informal nature of friendship, differences of expectation are seldom settled by one party claiming one's right or one's legitimate expectations against the other party. Instead, such differences are often subtly handled or negotiated through gestures, hints, or requests gently made. For example, I might say, I would like to do this, but I wouldn't mind doing something else. Now, very often friends reach agreements by one party going along with the party that happens to have a clearer or stronger preference. Now, what about situations where friends have equally strong but conflicting preferences in deciding what to do together? What would be the relevant norms to deal with this situation? Relational egalitarians may claim that since equal authority constitutes friendship as a social practice, friends would naturally find ways to resolve the clash in ways consistent with equal authority. Friends can take turns to decide, for example, or they can agree to choose the second best or to defer to an impartial third party or use some other egalitarian decision procedure that they accept as binding. Now, I agree that friends may indeed do this to resolve conflicts if they happen to endorse equal authority as the norm of friendship. But friends may act upon other norms, especially ones that are commonly thought to constitute friendship. One such norm is this. Good friends wish each other well and would do things to make each other happy. In deciding what to do together with my good friend, suppose I know he has a strong preference for an option, but I also happen to have an equally strong but conflicting preference. What should I do as a good friend of hers? I may be happy to accommodate and defer to her preference because I want to make her happy. This is what the Chinese people have called ram, that is yielding, deferring, or giving way. And of course, this norm of yielding applies to my friend as well. So she could yield too, in which case we have a situation of mutual yielding, which oddly creates another kind of conflict, a happy conflict, one, one might say, that still needs a resolution. In reality, often the conflict is resolved by the relative strengths of one's insistence to yield. If my insistence to yield is stronger and more persistent than my friend's, then my friend's preference will be adopted as our common plan of action. 
Relational egalitarians, however, might argue that the decision to go along or yield does not mean that equality authority is not the guiding norm in the relationship. To test if the common, sorry, to test if the norm of equal authority is at work, the argument goes: we should look at what would happen if one party in the relationship refuses to go along. James Wilson writes, for example, he said, equality between friends need not be formal or implicit. The equality could be virtual in the sense that one friend generally defers to the other's suggestion about what to do or how to share goods. This could still count as a relationship in which authority were equally shared, so long as the differential friend could refuse to defer. That the refusal would be respected, and that there is a suitably common knowledge between the friends about these facts. End of quote. Now I think this argument moves too quickly. The fact that the differential friend could refuse to defer, and that the refusal refusal would be respected, doesn't necessarily mean that equal authority is the norm that guides even implicitly friends. Behavior. That fact may simply reflect that the parties recognize and accept the voluntary nature of friendship. In friendship, no one can be forced to accept to the demand or request of another. If pressed too hard, the relationship will be damaged, and one could just leave the relationship. The differential friend could refuse to defer simply because commitment to a friendship is voluntary. And can be withdrawn if things go too badly. Similarly, that the friendship respect that the person respect the friendship is friend's refusal may just be because she accepts friendship is voluntary. Now, relation relational egalitarians may reply that appealing to friendship's voluntariness cannot completely dispel the equal authority account of friendship. They may argue that if a differential friend A, let's say, voluntarily submits herself herself to every demand made by her other friend. B, it is a worse relationship, even if A never refuses to defer. In this case of absolute voluntary deference, the problems of B violating the voluntariness of friendship will not arise. But the friendship is still a worse one. The argument goes. And the proper explanation of that is that the egalitarian norm of friendship is violated. I agree that this may be a worse friendship, but this need not be because it violates any norm of equal authority, but because in all likelihood it violates the norm of reciprocal goodwill and care. In the real world, a differential relationship is likely to re- result in exploitation of the differential person. Person B. Who regularly accepts A's deference would likely be a self-centered person, paying little attention to A's needs or preferences, thus failing to reciprocate goodwill and care. Moreover, if B recognizes A as an independent person whose agency and authority matters to B as well, then B would not accept A's absolute deference, because in the long run, such a deferential relationship undermines. Not only the reciprocal relationship, but also A's agency. 
If B was a good friend of A and cared for her well-being, including her agency, she would not accept A's absolute deference. If my argument so far is correct, then the voluntary informal nature of friendship, together with this norm of reciprocity of goodwill and care, can go a long way to explain a lot of what people do in a friendship. Friendships settle differences through subtle and gentle communication going along, yielding or de deferring to each other. They may, of course, take turns to decide, but it's not the case that the nature of friendship dictates that they must do so. In any event, friendship do not commit, commonly resort to decision-making procedures that invoke equal power or authority, still less to feel that they need any binding procedure to resolve difficult conflicts. The primary motive of friends is to maintain a happy relationship that is voluntary, informal, and reciprocal. Resorting to any notion of binding decision-making procedure simply goes against the special nature of friendship. Now, we need to consider two more possible rejoinders from relational egalitarians. The first rejoinder is a conceptual argument. Egalitarians may argue that a constitutive feature of friendship is non-hierarchical in power or authority, which they may claim implies that people in the relationship are supposed to enjoy equal power or equal authority. So friendship is egalitarian because it is non-hierarchical. But I think this argument is mistaken. Indeed, friendship is non-hierarchical it is true that if a relationship is not hierarchical, it does mean that neither party to the relationship is under the authority of the other. But it doesn't imply that each party possesses equal authority. Another possibility is that there is simply an absence of authority in the relationship. It is just anarchical. Non-hierarchy is consistent with the absence of authority while equal authority implies the presence of authority. The difference between equal authority and the absence of authority in friendship can be illustrated by considering a scenario discussed by Wilson. Suppose there is an informal group of friends who often spend time together, like in traveling, eating out, doing fun projects together. One person happens always to be in the minority of the group because her preferences or judgments about what to do differs from those of the others. What should the friends do in this situation? Now, if equal authority is a guiding norm in the relationship, they could deliberate and vote according to their own personal preferences or judgments. As a result, the minority friend would always find herself on the losing side. Now, Wilson thinks that, quote, this need not involve any unfriendly inequality of authority, end of quote. He writes, and I quote, if the friends sincerely and recognizably attend to the judgments of their idiosyncratic comrade, the friends may genuinely share authority and they may be genuine friends. Equality and friendship may require special efforts to be sure that the friend who is usually in a minority is probably hurt her authority within the relationship properly respected and that her 
acquiescence in the decisions of others is not taken for granted, end of quote. Now, I agree that if friends make special efforts to be sure that the minority friend is heard, then they may genuinely share authority. But I disagree that they may be genuine friends. Their use of authority, even if nothing inappropriate from the point of view of equal authority, is simply unfriendly. Genuine friends would care for the minority friend's interests and would be willing to defer, at least on some occasions, to their preferences, just to reciprocate goodwill and make, ha make her happy. Good friends would not settle their preferences or differences, with the minority friend being invoking, sorry, good friends would not settle their differences with the minority friend by invoking an egalitarian decision-making procedure that trumps the minority friend's vote. From this example, we can see more clearly the difference between the presence of authority on the one hand and its absence in a uh, relationship on the other. If authority is present in a, in a friendship, friends would care about who should possess authority and why, and they would settle conflicts by partly following authority norms. And if the appropriate authority norm is one of equality, then following it might result in the odd situation of a permanent minority, as the example suggests. But if authority is absent in friendship, or if authority is considered as an irrelevant issue in the relationship, then friends would settle differences in other ways consistent with friendship's constitutive norms, such as reciprocal care and the mutual goodwill to promote each other happiness. Reciprocal care need not be equal care, but it certainly rules out the situation of permanent minority. Now, Wilson responds to this apparently odd situation of permanent minority by saying that the friends also must take care that they do not neglect the interests of the idiosyncratic friend. For instance, by causing her to get much less pleasure from the relationship than others do. However, Wilson emphasizes that this is still, quote, an egalitarian concern, though not directly a concern about equal equality of authority, end of quote. In my view, this need not be an egalitarian concern, for the norms of reciprocity can equally, if not more obviously, explain why the friends might not or must not neglect the minority friends' interest. Now, reciprocity is not identical with equal considerations of interest. It is not an egalitarian norm as such. This brings us to the second and last possible rejoinder from egalitarian, uh, relational egalitarians. Even if equal authority is not a constitutive norm of friendship, egalitarians argue that there is at least one egalitarian norm, namely equal consideration of interests that constitutes friendship. Scheffler called the norm equal egalitarian deliberative constraint which says that equally important interests should play an equally significant role in influencing decisions made within the context of the relationship, end of quote. But is this really an egalitarian principle? 
the constraints looks like more a formal principle of equity, like interests should be treated alike, equally important interests should be taken equally seriously. Equal consideration is only a byproduct of a consistent application of equity in circumstances where people's interests are equally important. The constraint is thus not a substantive egalitarian principle that invokes equality as a fundamental non-derivative value. And how is the constraint supposed to work in a relationship, we may ask? When looking at equal consideration, egalitarians say they are concerned about the relationship as a whole and over time, not any one-off decisions. While this holistic approach can avoid the extremely demanding requirement to apply the constraint in each and every decision, it requires an even more demanding epistemic ability to grasp the entirety of a long-term relationship with all its complexity. How do we even begin to evaluate the relative importance of each party's interest holistically in a long-term relationship? The importance should be understood and assessed in connection with their life history, ambitions, and character traits of each individual. Other than minor interests, it is hard to determine the relative importance of each party's interest in the context of their interconnected life histories. Moreover, emphasizing that friends should respect the constraint and develop an effective disposition to treat each other's interests accordingly would likely lead to erosion of the quality of a valuable relationship. And Scheffler is aware of this pitfall. He says, quote, if the constraint is kept too closely in view or interpreted too rigidly, it can encourage a kind of scorekeeping that may erode the quality of the relationship. If the participants are in the relationship are constantly preoccupied with making sure that the comparable, comparably important interests of each of them are playing comparably significant roles in determining their joint decisions, that may exclude forms of intimacy and joint identification that give personal relationship much of their value. So the trick, Sheffley says, is to ensure that the egalitarian deliberative constraint is satisfied without itself becoming the focus of excessive attention, end of quote. Now, Scheffler's advice or trick is to ask people to find ways to ensure that the constraint is satisfied without itself becoming the focus of excessive attention. I think he's asking too much. He himself pro provides no clue to what sort of trick it is and how it's supposed to work. There's hardly any way for the parties in relationship to be confident in making comparative judgments about the relative importance of their interest let alone to find ways to ensure that the constraint is satisfied without eroding the mutual affection and the intimacy of the relationship. This is why I seriously doubt if the deliberative constraint can work as a norm in the real world of friendship. For the constraint can hardly be executed in a complex relationship and a faithful execution would lead to terrible results. 
the deliberative con constraint requires us to take up an accountant's mindset, always keeping an eye on who gets what, when, and how, which is a fundamental question in politics, but not in friendship. Now, my account of friendship as being minimally structured, highly dynamic and contextual, you know, can explain also why friendship is an unsuitable model for politics. Friendship is best maintained by acts of mutual affection, intimacy, accommodation and yielding. Friendship speaks in the warm language of mutual affection and reciprocal care. Citizenship, the code language of enforceable rights and obligations. Egalitarians are aware of the differences between friendship and political relationships. Yet they think that the principle of equal authority and equal consideration can still apply to politics. Are they right? If we put aside the substantive differences between politics and friendship, and if we just take the two principles out of the context of friendship, there seems no good reason to think that these principles cannot apply to citizens' relationships in a political society. But then why don't egalitarians simply invoke the two principles as independent principles to be applied directly to politics as well as to friendship, thereby avoiding the hard work of extending friendship norms to politics. The most plausible reason, I think, is that for relational egalitarians, equality is a relational ideal that must be understood in the context of human relationships rather than as an abstract distributive principle of justice. For them, the meaning and normative force of equality is embedded in personal relationships, such as friendship. But this view of relational egalitarians brings us back to the main critique I put forward in this paper, namely that friendship is not a paradigmatic case of relational equality. Norms of equality do not constitute friendship. What we may learn from the practice of friendship is not about authority or equality, but mutual affection, reciprocal care, and other non-egalitarian norms. That's the end of my paper. Thank you.